learning has evolved, how deep learning is starting to evolve. And then that sort of landed me in my last spot, which is currently at AtScale, where how do we bring this together? How do we start to apply machine learning and AI to solve current business challenges? Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Gaurav, welcome to Stories in AI. You are my first recording in 2023. So how are you today? I'm good and thanks for having me. I'm very excited. No, it's uh, it's exciting to have it. I know we've been pushing and postponing and you know rescheduling for a while. Why don't you kick us off with your personal story? Who is Gaurav Rao? How did you get to where you are today? And what do you do today? Sounds good. I'd like to say I have a very non-linear path to where I am. So I think I've always been in the business of trying to solve hard problems. And it goes back to my days in university, which I don't know how many of your guests will go back that far, but I was a computer engineer. And then I decided that that was not technically deep enough for me. And I needed to know the physics, like how do these circuits work? How do these logic gates work? Uh, and I actually transitioned to a engineering physics major uh, at my university and uh, it was painful. So um, as one can imagine, uh, I'm, I'm probably not using all of that today, but you know, what was interesting back then for me was you know what you prove these theorems out you're you're you know at your mental capacity you're at your breaking point you know those were things that i learned back in university and you know it served me well since because a lot of what i've been doing in the tech world since has been trying to solve hard problems and a lot in emerging spaces um so you know i've only been at a, a few companies since graduation but i was at a large company uh, that gave the ability to have almost multiple tours of duty, you know, product, engineering, sales, corporate strategy, mostly around machine learning and AI. Um, but a lot of it was also on, you know, bleeding new tech. How do we go build the next data science platform off of open source, not proprietary techniques? How do we move to the cloud? Um, and then after that large company, I worked at a much smaller startup, uh, realizing that I'd like to see both sides of the world, you know, having the big uh, investment opportunity in a large company versus building something from scratch, right? As you are at a small startup yeah. and that small startup was more around deep learning and how to run deep learning models more efficiently on CPUs. So a, a nice blend, especially given what we're seeing in the world today, on how you know classical machine learning has evolved how deep learning is starting to evolve and then that sort of landed me in my last spot which is currently at at scale 
where how do we bring this together? How do we start to apply machine learning and AI to solve current business challenges? And as someone who's been in the industry now for well over 15 years, you know, while I've started in data and while I've started in solving hard problems, I think what I'm starting to enjoy and what I seek more of is now, how do I take these hard problems and solve these hard problems, but how do we make them impactful? How do we, especially from an enterprise standpoint or user standpoint, make it impactful for either that end corporation or end enterprise or business team or individual, whether that's a developer or line of business user. Got it. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think, you know, a few things that, you know, I want to pick on and go deeper into in this conversation. I love that notion of what you said, like it's, it's, there's a lot of shiny objects in AI and there's a new shiny object called chat GPT that's in here. All of that is great and great innovations that happen. But AI never really had an ingredient problem. There's a lot of ingredients to actually do powerful machine learning and AI, right? But AI still has a recipe problem, which is how do I put these things together to solve a problem and deliver value to the business or to the user, right? So, you know, first off, amazing background. Thanks for taking the time and sharing your insights. And I know in your role, you actually get to work with, uh, you know, organizations of different sizes, scale and, and uh, geography, if you will. And I, I, you've seen a lot, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with this. Um, no, you know your your thoughts on where is AI today in the market? So where's where's AI today? What does the market look like? And I did actually read your blog that you wrote, so I'll I'll, I'll reference that back in. But you know, go ahead, give me the the broad scope. Thank you for reading it. I hope you found it info uh, you know informational. But I I'll give you two stats on where I think AI is today. So. In the end of 2022, IDC did a report on the economic impact of AI. And basically what they came out with was by 2023, AI solution spend is gonna hit $500 billion. So this is with an economic recession, right? So I think the investment around AI is not getting shortchanged because things that are gonna help with you know, reducing cost, improving operational efficiencies, um, improving margins, hitting top and bottom line. Those types of investments aren't being cut. In fact, they're actually being invested more heavily into. Mm. However, in contrast, Gartner also did a study end of last year, as well as MIT and quite a few others on what percentage of machine learning models are actually being deployed. And what's more interesting is that's roughly around 50, 53%. So you've got huge spend that's continuing, yet ROI and impact is still roughly 50%, right? So, you know, putting this back into a context, if you have a data science team, one out of every two machine learning models is dying on the vine. And as we know, this is time, this is skill, this is compute resources, right? This is just simply not good enough. And, you know, from where I think the industry is, it sort of makes sense that this is where we are, that it's now more about how do we deploy and scale? Because if you look at the last eight to 10 years, as you and I both know, in the beginning, we were brute forcing these models, right? It was about the data sets. It was about what search algorithm and algorithmic search, you know, technique am I going to solve, 
right, to, to train this model. Then AutoML showed up and it was great. Upload a CSV, it's gonna help me do some of this. Now, interestingly enough, especially in the deep learning space that you mentioned, I can just fine tune a pre-trained model, right? I've got one-shot learning, I've got transfer learning. So the point being is we've seen a shift in the last eight to 10 years where model training is effectively starting to commoditize. That's not the hardest challenge that enterprises are faced with. Now it's when I build these machine learning models, how do I make sure they're getting deployed and how do I keep them in deployment, right? So this becomes much more of that last 10 to 15%, that last mile that everybody talks about around business efficiency and business impact, which ultimately relies on some sort of business workflow or process. And I think that's the state of the industry right now is how are we solving for that last bit? How do we start to apply these machine learning models more efficiently? And it makes sense that, you know, tools like MLOps are, are also starting to explode because we've shifted now from model training to model deployment. And now even within model deployment, I don't believe those MLOps tools are enough. It's really about how are these business users starting to incorporate the predictions, the outputs of these ML models as part of their day-to-day -day workflows. No, it's interesting. Um, and, and in your blog, you referenced the, the, to that last point, you referenced the, the rise of the citizen data scientists, right? And um, explore that for me a little bit in this context, because you know, I'll tell you what, what, I, what I thought about it when, 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 when you wrote that. One is like, even though on the one hand, there is a lot of research. And as I mentioned, a lot of ingredients happening in, in AI research has completely taken off. Right. I mean, I think the, one of the best outcomes that we saw in, in the industry, in AI and AI in particular is how the, there is a culture of sharing stuff that we do, right? 80% of all machine learning papers now have code in GitHub, right? So it's just un unbelievable where there's a lot more sharing because people realize like, you know, model building is going to models are going to be commodity at the end of the day. Right. So it's about how you use it, how you package it, how you deliver value and hold on. Yes. So that's amazing. But on the other hand, this gap between value realization and, you know, the availability of technology has been a big problem. And you mentioned in the end, like right now that, you know, look, it is about trying to, how do you make the users just consume it and stuff. And then, from that context, right, explore that the role of a citizen data scientist. Is it really a citizen data scientist or is it just a citizen user who's just consuming insights? Explore that for me. It's a, it's a great point. And, you know, I'm smiling because I think the term citizen data scientist, we've seen it for a while. And it's something that's been a byproduct of these AutoML investments and AutoML tools. It was, we are building platforms so that non-developers can start to use and incorporate AI more seamlessly. However, I think even in these, you know, low code, no code platforms, there's still a good amount of coding that's required. Mm -hmm. And I would say most of where the last eight to 10 years has been focused has been around primarily data scientists because it was about model training. MLOps has caused us to look a little bit more into an ML engineer because now, once I've trained that model, it's how do I balance that model at runtime with my compute, 
my application demands as I'm running this in my VM or my cloud infrastructure, right? It's about how to utilize my resources that are available to ensure that that machine learning workflow is doing exactly what it's supposed to. And where we haven't spent as much time is, you know, I'm in the, I'm the underwriter, right? At a bank. I know that there's a machine learning model that's measuring, you know, whether I should approve or deny a loan. But that underwriter, if I was to argue what tool are they using, they're not using an AutoML tool because they don't know what a regression model is or they don't know what algorithmic search really means. And I also don't think it's, you know, any of these core uh, <clears throat> BI tools, right? Because they're, they're also not the right flavor. So where citizen data scientist has come into play is it's become this catch-all. And what I really think a citizen data scientist should be is we have these concepts of analysts, you know, these are business analysts and their, their roles are somewhat broad, but at the end of the day, there's a business subject matter expert like this underwriter, like a VP of marketing or a director of marketing. They're working on the assumption that underlying their workflow, there may be ML models. Do they need to understand that ML model to a certain degree? And I think, Bridging to that user needs to be the next step we make because that's the only way we begin to apply AI is if that user, that truly non-developer can incorporate it, can understand it and can consume, right? These outputs, these ML outputs from research, from proprietary tools, unless they can do that natively within their existing environments, I don't think we're ever going to break that, you know, 53%, you know, deployment rate. Yeah. And we're never going to get to that last mile of actually running right in that business process. Interesting. So not only, you know, giving the end user the right scaffolding tools, uh, the ability to actually understand, use, and make sense out of the actual outputs of the ML and putting that uh, uh, practice or to, to, to drive value. Is there an element of, you know, knowledge, right? For example, one of the things that, you know, historically this has happened in every technology that we roll through a technology organization, like a CIO's organization in, in any organization where you start everything centralized and then you start building all these, like, here's my AI center of competence. We're building these great machine learning models and we're going to build this and give it to the user. Very quickly, all of these guys learn that the only way you can actually really deliver value is engaging the user in the process, right? Is there an element of knowledge capture, um, you know, from the edges, from the edges of the organization, from the users that can then further improve your process, your models, your training or real-time training or federated training, whatever that happens in the model. Is there an element of that? And is that, you know, is there an evolution of how do you build this knowledge layer across the enterprise to go make that happen. I mean, is there something there? Um, I, absolutely. So part of, you know, what I'm doing at my current company at AdScale is we've built this universal semantic layer. Mm. And the, the, the realization around why a universal semantic layer is important is precisely what you described, right? We have distributed tools. And when I say tools, any of these consumption tools, it could be an AI tool, it could be a Python library, it could be an AutoML or low code platform. 
conversely, it could be a, it could be a business intelligence tool. We've all used things like Salesforce or Tableau or Excel, right? Um, if you're in finance, business logic is being defined in very different places throughout an enterprise organization. And as a result of that, you can often get inconsistencies, right, in how this logic is being defined. So part of why a semantic layer and a universal one becomes so important is as business logic gets defined in various tooling environments, how can you organize it, but then also make it consumable across all those different tools, right? So that if, for example, you're, in a, you're a retailer, you know, you can define sales, right, or revenue, and you know that finance, your brick and mortar store, your machine learning team that's trying to forecast churn, all of them are using revenue and sales exactly the way that it should be intended, right? Mm -hmm. We have very few systems of record that can traverse the different tools because what we often see is a new tool will come in and say, we are the system of record. Forget about all these other investments you've made. Where in reality, you know, Excel, there's going to be users who are never going to get rid of Microsoft Excel. Good luck, right? And we, we see that on the AI side as well, right? You mentioned open source. There's always going to be innovation that's happening faster. The rate and pace of what you can do in open source often exceeds what's happening in the proprietary tools. So in a very similar fashion, you'll have even distributed you know, AI environments where you'll have your favorite tools and libraries and then there's always that emerging tech group or COE, right? That's looking at how do I incorporate the next greatest thing? Well, good luck trying to piece all of these things together when you're coming back to a business process or a business decision. So building that logical view becomes very important. And as you pointed out, it becomes a knowledge center, right? It becomes the place where certain things get defined once and then can be reusable across the industry, uh, across the enterprise. You know, is this, but the relevance of this is actually for mostly large complex organizations with multiple tentacles, right? Is this relevant even for like, you know, if you're, if you're a 50 people company or a hundred people company and you're, I mean, you're basing your, uh, sales CRM on Salesforce, you're going to probably use snowflake to actually put all the data from all the different you know web streams uh, you probably will take a, a little bit of a power bi to just do some visualization your website you have a transaction engine does it make sense to actually invest in a semantic layer there or is it a scale thing i would say it may even be more important to invest in a semantic layer because what you're starting to do is build a foundation of you know how to systematically build out these views around business logic. And, you know, what happens even in the smallest companies is those challenges exist. They just don't happen at the scale of a larger organization. So your team and size may be smaller, but the same challenge around inconsistencies and sort of gaps between, you know, business, machine learning, AI, they still exist. So they're going to still impact right? They may not have the confounding impact of a larger organization that has, you know, multiple of these units, but at the yeah. end of the day, you're trying to deliver value, right? For your end user, whether that's, you know, another business or corporation or an end user. 
And I would argue building that methodology and practice early on will serve you better because you're still going to solve for that challenge at a smaller scale. But smaller is also, uh, you know, that that's also somewhat ambiguous, right? You could be a 50 person team that's still driving 10 million in revenue and have a very big problem with inconsistent data, right? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's so true. And, and, um, you know, I like talking about things like when you have, when you start working with unstructured data, there's a lot of knowledge residual across the entire spectrum. And, you know, if there is a consistent way that reflects your knowledge layer or your business logic, if you will, for an organization, it kind of makes it makes, I mean, back to your original, uh, uh thesis on the, the opportunities to drive more adoption. Well, if an executive looks at the number, they don't believe it because it's coming in five different ways in two different BI tools. I mean, obviously it's not, you know, they're not going to get to see the adoption, right? So that's where the semantic layer kind of a framework will also drive those adoption. Got it. Exactly. Like a, a very simple example, like let's say, you know, we're developers, we're building machine learning models and I, I'm doing a time series forecast, mm -hmm. right? Time and how the business defines their time relative hierarchies matters, right? How do I know what fiscal calendar the business has defined their dates from? How do I know if the you know week starts on Sunday versus Monday? All of these little intricacies, as we know, whether you're a 50 person startup or you're a 50,000 person company, someone still has to figure out as a developer who's building that time series model, how do I pull in these time relative measures? And if they have to define it and if they get it wrong, right, whether you're 50 and you're one developer or you're 50,000 and you've got a team of hundred data scientists, the headache of reworking that scenario is still going to be pretty big. Um, and that's where having access to that logic becomes so important rather than trying to figure out and assume and then have to go through these retraining and reiteration steps. Yeah. If I can just very quickly see through, you know, my, my semantic layer, what the business is defining and how they're doing it, it becomes that much more convenient, right? Time to value. Yep. And, you know, like, and, and I, like I work in healthcare now, so it's, it's very evident. You can see this industry ontology is just changing. Uh, I mean, the good news is there's a lot of efforts around the industry to standardize on how you represent data, the data models, the ontologies and so forth, which helps pretty, you know, uh, now if you, if you apply that or use that in conjunction with state of the art, you know, deep learning and machine learning models, now you're able to deliver value much quicker. And like, you know, we, we run into customers, they ask like, how are you able to do this? They tried this for like six years at, you know, uh, a different place and it didn't, it didn't work out. And it's like, look, it's just the timing. And, you know, like if I, we have tried this five years ago when the ontologies weren't ready, the semantic layer wasn't ready, the value you realize is going to be sporadic and it's not going to be as uh, consistent. Um, switching gears to uh, chat GPD. I mean, that's the, the talk of town, you know, uh, what an amazing, um, you know, end to 2022 with like a five days to a million users for a machine learning model. I mean, just, it just, it just blows my mind, which you just think about it from that simplistic terms, right? One machine learning model that just decided, you know, of course, trained in multiple tasks and across the data of the internet, captured the imagination of a million people in less than five days 
And I don't know, more, maybe that number is like more like 100 million right now. So what's going on? I, it's, I was going to say, if we didn't talk about chat GPT, I think uh, the audience would probably be uh, remiss because it, it's, it's hard not to hear about it, right? And I think you, you mentioned something that's very key, which is it captured sort of the imagination, I think, of, of an audience. And, you know, an example I, I like to give is, you know, I was in a meeting recently and we were talking about this and I asked, you know, how many people here have trained a machine learning model? or an AI model, nobody raised their hand. And then you ask, well, who's heard of ChatGPT? Everybody raises their hand. Who's tried ChatGPT? Two thirds have raised their hand. What's happening as a result of ChatGPT is it's making the concept of AI much, much more pervasive across an audience who Unlike us, you know, where we've, we've lived and we've breathed AI, we understand these algorithms and we've understood these models, it's made it that much more accessible. And I think having conversation or conversational AI be the interface makes it that much easier because I don't have to go bring up a Jupyter notebook, right? M my friends, right, who are, you know, in various professions, they have no idea what a Jupyter notebook is, but they've all told me, hey, check out this story that I tried to, to build in ChatGPT. How cool is this? And what ChatGPT has done with a very powerful language model has, you know, made AI more accessible, made AI more usable for many folks who to this day and age probably never really focus too much on AI. Chances are they've been using it, you know, whether they're using Waze or Google Maps or they're using, you know, Spotify through their recommendation systems or Netflix, they're using AI, you know, more seamlessly, but this allows them to interact, I think, with AI in a very, very different user experience that's opened up the world, which is why yep. you're hitting these usage stats so, so quickly. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's definitely, it definitely captured the imagination of everybody, right? I think I like to actually equate this to what IBM did with Watson and Jeopardy, right? And, you know, yes, different time, different kinds of models. It's symbolic logic and expert systems-based systems. But it made AI a dinner table conversation, literally, right? Back, you know, 15, 12 years ago, maybe. Um, and it really made it like, you know, people didn't understand what it was. And they were like, you know, we were, we were coming off of another winter, the famed winters in AI. And it kind of captured the imagination of people to talk about saying in a partially negative way, because that just freaked people out and say, look, holy crap, this is a, is it Terminator, is Skynet, and is it Dr. Watson's going to take my jobs away? That kind of stuff, right? Created a little bit of a, uh, uh, a fear and apprehension fight in the market, but it captured the imagination. It's, I mean, I, I owe my entire career to IBM Watson because of that, right? I mean, think about it, right? I mean, if, if Watson hadn't launched the Jeopardy uh, playing uh, bot back in the day, you know, we all wouldn't be in this market for uh, in AI, right? Similarly, I think the what, what ChatGPT did was like the other side of the spectrum, which is like, like you needed a way for people to go beyond talking about AI, to trying AI, to playing with AI, to interacting with AI, and just really get an understanding of what can you really do when you have a powerful machine learning model or deep learning model behind the scenes, right? 
that imagination through language was being captured by you know chat gpd and gpd3 but specifically chat gpd the the more nuanced thing that i was so impressed with and you know we all as as product guys and being in ai we're constantly looking for how do you drive adoption so how do you drive people to use it and you know what it, it really showed was the following and i think a, a, a friend of mine uh vishal is at amazon he leads uh, alexa shopping right now or alexa um you know, voice, I think. And he talks about, he wrote a VentureBeat article a few weeks ago and he said, um, you know, conversation is the ultimate user interface, right? And that was so brilliant in the way they did it. The, the interaction, the richness of the interaction, the way they actually, you know, designed it. And the UX designer probably was out of the job because, you know, they just had to build a chatbot, right? Just a simple conversational interface. But the notion that the best way to interact with an intelligent system today, by far, that captured the most of the imagination of people around the world has been a conversational interface. I mean, to me, that was the two big things that I took away from. Of course, it's a language model. It's very powerful. It's trained with all the data on the internet. Uh, it'll, 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 uh, it'll, it'll pass a SAT test because it's generic enough. It is, it'll flunk, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a precise problem where it's actually all about precision than just in the breadth and stuff. So all of that aside, right? Those are all the details, the technical thing, but it really opened up an era of AI where now we don't have to, in, both of us, we don't have to educate our friend who's a plumber on what AI is. They already know. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it comes back to the theme of what we've been talking about, which is this last mile on you know, you can build the most state-of-the-art model, but unless it's being used for something, it's not going to be impactful. And what better way to make it useful than using it in a way that every human being can understand? Language, text, right? Like we said before, I don't have to go figure out how to code in Python. I don't have to figure out how to go code in SQL. I don't need to go build a Jupyter notebook. Like think about all the ways prior to conversational AI, you would need to build up skill set around just to experience and interact with AI. And then now think about the fact that I can use something that I've grown up with, right? Language to interact with AI. And I think that's going to be very powerful. And I, I do actually believe that language is, and we're already seeing it, the next wave of AI because it makes it more usable. We, we flew through this era of, you know, state-of-the-art research, which, and is going to continue. But how do we take advantage of that state-of-the-art research if the average user has to go become a PhD, has to understand stats, has to be this coder? And like I said earlier, even low-code and no-code platforms still require a degree of expertise and an understanding of data pipelines, ML pipelines. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go tell my friends who are lawyers, you know, explain a data and an ML pipeline to me, and they're going to sit there blankly. But if I said, hey, can you go write an article around, you know, XYZ, they'll probably just log into their OpenAI account, feed a prompt, a language prompt to chat GPT, and it'll go do it. Very different. Absolutely. No, you know, uh, kudos. I think we're, we're in fascinating times and this just opened up the, just when we, people are getting a little jaded with Web3 and crypto, the crashes and AI and stuff like that, 
just a ray of hope, you know, in, in, in right. activating yeah. the, the universe exactly. on, right? <laughs> on AI. And, it, and I think now it becomes, you know, like we were talking about, chat GPT has become, you know, the interface, it's demos, it's, it's great. But now, how do we start to incorporate this type of technology, right? We said it before, it's more than just conversation. What these language models are doing for enterprise search is radically revolutionary compared to how we've done search before. And now the questions come up around, well, how do we make this technology more usable, right? We both know that chat GPT, if you're going to go try to train your own, right, large language model, you better have quite a big budget around infrastructure, both GPUs and CPUs. And then, you know, once you've done this, right, what's the business model? Like, how do you start to make money around this? I think these are the next few questions that we're going to be seeing in uh, the 2023 AI renaissance. Yeah, that's awesome. So, So what are your predictions for 2023? What are we going to see? So I, I do believe we'll see probably three to four chat GPT competitors. Uh, and I think they're going to be open source based. I think what we're going to start to see is, you know, radical innovation in the open source community because people want to make this as pervasive as possible. And I think the first to win here is going to be, you know, how do they build the community of users around this and then intelligently figure out the, the, business model around it, because let's, let's be frank, you know, anyone that's going to go build a business around a large language model better figure out how to make money because these are not cheap, uh, models that you're keeping on the shelf. So, um, you know, building a community is one, but making it usable at a, at a, uh, a margin is also going to be important. And then the other things I see for 2023 are more of the uh, analyst community, I think embracing AI, as I mentioned, you know, while deep learning is important, there's still a lot of structured data within the enterprise. It's why, you know, we see some of these large um, database and warehousing customers doing so well in the cloud. And in order to take better advantage of that, we need a way to bridge to that business user uh, Mm -hmm. or business subject matter expert. Um, and then finally, I think 2023, we see a lot more focus around ROI and impact. And the reason being last eight to 10 years, lots of investment, people want to start to see a return now. Um, so while we have this great innovation and this new AI renaissance that's being transitioned and kicked off, we still have many, many core, you know, processes that need to benefit from AI today, right? Or yesterday. No, absolutely. I also see every chief AI officer or head of machine learning in every industry being asked a question by, you know, the CEOs, the boards and everybody and their mother to say, what the hell are you doing when there's chat GPT out there? How are you using it? Right? I mean, back in the day, I'm like, the answer is not so much like, how are you using it? Or in some cases, it may not even make sense to use it, but it, it kind of, elevates the expectation from everybody too, right? So it kind of be, it's going to be a lot more pressure to get to ROI. Gaurav, thank you so much for spending the time. This was amazing. Um, um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, any, what, what question haven't I asked you so far? I, I think, I think you hit everything. <laughs> we covered a bunch, right? How we can the viewers, 
Yeah. How can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Where can they find you on the internet? Yeah. So please, if you'd like to learn more, you know, about machine learning and AI, you can find me on, you know, LinkedIn, I'm on Medium. But if you want to learn more about the semantic layer and what we're doing, especially around bridging some of this machine learning and AI world with how businesses are making decisions, please go check out uh, AtScale, you know, www.atscale.com. You know, we have lots of blogs and articles, um, as well as tutorials on, you know, how to get started and how to start thinking about incorporating and standardizing the business logic that you have within your enterprise, because chances are it's going to benefit your business users, but it's also going to be very, very important for your developers and your developer communities that are distributed and off trying to take advantage of the next greatest things like chat GPT. And we, when they do that, we want them to do that within the context of what your business needs. Awesome. Gaurav, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.